This is the Down to South London podcast, where experienced investor Jeroen Hopper talks to real investors south of the river. Lots of people say that you can't make good investments in London. Jeroen will talk to real people who are. Welcome to the uh, Down to South London podcast. My name is Jeroen Hopper. I'm a South London property investor. And the Down to South London podcast is all about investing in South London. Today I'm joined by Roche Armour of Fenura Developments, who's going to tell us a little bit more about the investments that he's made in South London. So Ro, why don't you kick us off and tell us who you are and what you've been doing. Sure. I've been working in property development full-time for about a year and a half to two years now. Um, I decided to make a change from the corporate world. Uh, I worked for a bank, did a bit of um, time in management consulting as well. So my corporate history was risk management, project management, and uh, change management. Um, Prior to my time in the banking space, I was a, an army officer with Royal Engineers, where I served for about nine years. Worked in a few uh, places around the UK, based overseas, and some operational tour experience as well, and had a great time. But having made those various transitions, I got to the point where I realised actually it'd be great to be working for myself and building my own capability in business. So I chose property, having had an interest in that space for quite some time. That's uh, that's that's massive. So your main interest for switching career is just uh, a passion for property, or what was it that prompted you to go? Yeah, there's a there's a couple of things actually. Um, you know, I worked for a couple of quite large institutions, as as I've mentioned. Um, you know, and you always played a very small part in a very large machine. Um, had a great time, learned a hell of a lot, really good experience, travelled the world, worked some really cool people in some really interesting places. But I had a background interest in property as well. Bought my first buy to let in like 2006, 2007, something like that. Having kind of had that seed planted there, having had that interest, as I kind of went through my corporate career, I realised that actually, even though I'm great at working with big teams, you know, I've always had a, that inner entrepreneur that was fighting its way out. So I thought it'd be great to actually use those learnings and that experience to build something myself. And already having that interest in property and having invested in a lot of education. In terms of time, um, I thought actually that's a great, great way to do it. That's amazing. So that's a big transition from being, as you say, a small cog in a big machine to well, literally spinning all the cogs yourself, I guess. So you told me about your HMO investments. I've actually been to see your previous projects. Um, what was it about houses of multiple occupation that attracted you to think? Well, this is a path I want to go down. This is a fruitful course. Let, let me do another one. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, progressing from um, single lets, I thought, um, okay, how can we, how can we generate um, more income more quickly? Um, so, it was actually working with my partner now, my wife Louise. Um, we decided it'd be great to embark on a journey where we could get some education. Um, so, Louise actually did a course with um, a great guy Trevor Cutmore, who I know you know well as well. Uh, he did a mentorship program where Louise was involved in, and that kind of gave us the, the, the ground or the base base knowledge really to define a strategy that would work for us. And HMO seemed like a great place to start because they give you higher cash flow, much greater yields. There's a little bit more work involved up front to get them set up. We thought that'd be a great way to actually enter the market to start generating passive income and cash flow, which we could then build upon for other types of projects further down the line. Passive income is very powerful, isn't it? So um, if, if I understand this right, you chose the strategy mainly because it's a lot of work up front and then you can sort of, you, you go hands off, don't you? You have it managed. 
Yeah, so the, the idea was take on projects, so we do that work exactly to say up front, do all the, the, you know, the detailed work into the planning to get them set up, um, and then actually work with the appropriate agents that have HMO management experience to actually manage those for the long term. So in theory, if you set them up right and you're working with the right partners, then absolutely you can take more of a step back and it's just more a case of having to dip in every now and then if there's any major maintenance issues or anything else that you have to deal with. But primarily, our business model centers around outsourcing the management for the long term so that, as you say, it can allow you to have that kind of passive income being generated for the long term. Absolutely. So I think um, the crux of it is you create the value from the start, don't you? So you buy cheap, you refurbish, you add value, and you finance out. It's not too dissimilar to the strategy that, that I use for uh, the flats that I buy. But what type of properties do you normally buy? What do you go for? So typically I look for houses that um, can easily be reconfigured. So typically it'd be the sort of thing that has a few bedrooms upstairs um, and some decent sized rooms downstairs, which you can easily convert subject to meeting the minimum space requirements and all of the other things that the HMO um, legislation require of you when you're converting a property. So typically it'll be like a Victorian property because they tend to be quite large and you can reutilize the space in there quite easily. Quite often you need to do you know, a little bit more than just sticking a few fire doors on. There's a whole scope of works that has to be um, you know, considered as well, such as upgrading electrics, the plumbing, the fire systems, soundproofing, mm -hmm. thermal upgrades, as well as making sure you meet the minimum amenity and space standards for the communal areas and that sort of thing. There's quite a bit to think about. This isn't just a back to brick. It's you, you're redesigning the whole space. I mean, you summed it up quite well, and you know you summed that up within thirty seconds. But I've seen what you do, and um, and it, if you ever have a look at any of Rose projects on social media, be it LinkedIn or YouTube or what have you, uh, you'll see that the sheer amount of work that goes into its projects is absolutely unbelievable. We're talking RSJs here, extensions there, extra toilets going in here, showers and cupboards and things like that big cupboards mind you and it's definitely not a beds and sheds sort of thing they're really good quality but um hats off to you to, to to reconfigure that not only on paper but to execute it um in real life as well it's, yeah uh, it's absolutely amazing it, it's uh, it's hard work it takes a lot of planning um but because we're investing for the long term as well um you know we find it's, it makes more sense to invest more up front to really go through the detail of upgrading everything so mm -hmm. that it's going to last for the long run because you will see a lot of developers uh, and HMO investors, for example, who can achieve the outcome um, far quicker and far less cost up front, um, which, which can work. But I think because of the changes in regulations and compliance, because you have to meet so many requirements you know, in, in terms of sound, fire protection, we wanted to build a portfolio of, um, of, of, of properties that are actually built to last, so mm -hmm. there's going to be minimal maintenance costs in the short term. So that's why we go that extra mile now. You know, you've got to strike that balance between spending too much up front yeah. um, to make sure that it stacks up at the end. But because we have minimum criteria in terms of what sort of return that the, the asset needs to be generating once it's actually been filled, you know, we work out roughly what is, you know, what our tolerance is in terms of how much we can afford to spend on it. And that, that's a really important part because mm. the deal has to stack. And if it goes well over budget, then that can affect you know the residual income that's going to result at the end of it, and your and your you know your yields uh, and your return on capital employed. Absolutely, absolutely. And and as you found on the previous project, um, if you haven't been following Roe uh, at all, his previous project actually was, was very challenging, and his builder actually went bust during the build. Now, 
Um, that obviously hurt your yield. I'm sure it did. It can't not have done. How did you recover? Yeah. So our very first project was something that uh, we thought, you know, well, let's let's go for the for the biggest project that we can take on that, that was within our sort of risk tolerance levels. Um, and we, we did some really detailed planning because the idea was to get credibility, get a really good project under our belt so that you know we could open the doors for bridging finance uh, and also to attract investment for future projects and really kind of build something that could really push and challenge us. We, you know, Louise and I, we both love, we love a challenge. Um, well, you certainly had one when the builder walked <laughs> yeah. off. Well, so what happened in terms of background, so you know, we, we, we took a, what was a two-bed mid-terrace house in South London. Um, Effectively, two up, two down, or two up, two down. We uh, took the roof off of it, you know, so we built two more uh, ensuite bedrooms up on the top floor. We did a single story rear extension, we stripped the house back to brick, we reconfigured inside, rewired, replumbed, put in five bathrooms, new kitchen, the works, and everything had to be And the tidal split, yeah, so the shed and the garden <laughs> became a tower block as well, right? <laughs> so we really did maximise that property. Yeah, you certainly did. You know what we were looking to achieve out of it was a six-bed, high-quality, um, high-end uh, HMO for young professionals, which, which fortunately we achieved. Um, but to your point, um, we did our risk assessment up front, and the one thing that we didn't factor in was the potential for the builder to go bust. And unfortunately, that was the one thing that did happen. There were a number of key learnings from that was that the effectively the contractor had taken on something that was far bigger than they were actually capable of achieving. Now we did all the due diligence on them, got references, saw other work, and all the other things that you should do when you're you know, choosing which builder to work with. So I think with the knowledge we had at the time, we did as much due diligence as anyone could have done, You know, mm. even as far as looking at financial records, companies, house, that sort of thing. I knew there was a, you know, it was gonna be slightly bigger than what they were used to doing, but I did feel it was within their capability, and it was technically, it's just unfortunately they ran into cash flow problems because they had too many jobs running at the same time and actually weren't putting enough attention on the job as it was. Uh, and unfortunately a lot of things had to be redone um, at their cost because they were starting to go a bit off piste. Um, I was working full time at, at the time. Um, and I think perhaps one of the biggest learnings for me was I wasn't spending enough time on site as they were going through the journey, even though it got off to a great start. Now, in terms of uh, the cost, that ended up costing, um, t in total, probably what it should have cost for a job of that magnitude. Um, I think both we and the contractors under underestimated the scale of work that had been involved. Yeah. Now, when when the um, uh, when the, the contractor went through their um, CPO, which is a creditor's uh, voluntary liquidation, effectively them, them going bust, what happened was that uh, we probably hadn't spent too much more than we should have done by that point but we lost a lot of time. So effectively, I, I ended up managing the project myself, bringing in my own tradespeople, my own plumber, my own electrician, managed to salvage a couple of the original core builders from that original team. But I had like a proper multinational team. I had Albanians, <laughs> I had uh, Jamaicans, I had Polish, I had uh, English, you know, it, you know, I had, I'm sure there's a couple other nationalities that were in well, there. Well, thank God the Brexit well. effect hadn't, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hadn't yeah. taken full force. Yeah, right. exactly. Um, but because I was managing it myself and using my military, my project management skills, and really working my network to bring in the, the right people to help advise so that we could get it done properly, the outcome was that we didn't actually lose a huge amount of money on it, but we lost a bit of time. So what could have, should have been about six months turned into about nine months, but also is a huge cost of my own personal time. So even though it cost me in time, the uh, the knowledge and the experience and the confidence that it gave me were, were absolutely priceless. 
But to your original point, were we still achieving the, um, the end outcome of the yield that we calculated up front? Well, actually we did because we ended up getting a much higher valuation than we had um, um, sort of factored in. Um, and even though the bill costs had gone up, actually the end valuation was uh, up an equivalent level as well, which meant that when it came to refinancing, it still fit the model exactly as we'd um, sort of um, predicted up, or as we'd, as we'd created in, within our financial model up front. So that's great, you know, and that's, that's an asset which is performing at 20% uh, plus, you know, that's return on capital that's really in terms of the money that's left in the deal. So actually, I, I can't be more pleased with the outcome of it, even though it was a bit more painful and a few more gray hairs you know that were uh, that, that were produced as a result of the experience, but actually gave a huge amount of confidence and enabled me to do what I'm doing today, which which is actually good, and that's valuable in well. myself, isn't it? That's yeah. that's worth actually paying money for. It. But it sounds like you know things worked out. You got the high valuation to compensate for the uh, the overspend in, in time and money, and and as you say, it wasn't really an overspend. You'd under budgeted, yeah. really. Yeah. Um, you spent what you should have spent in the end. Yeah. So, no, we're yeah. out. So tell me, how um, you're you're a Battersea man? What prompted you to invest locally in South London? Because you hear on the uh, on the networks, everyone's going, "Oh, the yields are fantastic up north. You must go to Sunderland or Manchester." Or, what's prompted you to stay local? Yeah, so two things really. I mean, you're absolutely right. Two of the key considerations that investors always um, make are um, or, or give are you know potential for capital growth, and then what's their cash flow going to be. So. What we wanted to try and achieve as best as we could was a blend of those two of those two outcomes. Um, and coupling that with a with a risk management strategy, we thought, okay, we want something that's going to be not too far away. Now, when we started this journey for um, looking for properties to turn to HMOs, uh, Louise was on a career break uh, and she was doing the, the table of twelve course with Trevor, and she um, identified two key areas that we thought could work quite well. One of them being East London and the sort of Stratford area. Mm -hmm. Um, with the post Olympics boom and the rest of it, you know, we still identified lots of opportunity there. And the second one was Croydon. Now, what we found was it was taking a long time to travel backwards and forwards to Stratford, and actually it was much quicker and much more time efficient for us to um, focus on the Croydon area mm -hmm. in South London. So we thought, okay, as part of being able to manage projects and risk, we thought let's stick to, to an area that's close enough for us to do lots of viewings, understand the area, understand the market dynamics. And somewhere where we feel we can still get the right level of cash flow and yield, but also it's going to be a bit more robust for us in the long term in terms of capital growth. And London, you know, in South London being our patch, you can't go wrong because there's just simply not enough quality housing and there'll always be a demand because it's fundamentally an undersupply. So a combination of three factors really cash flow, capital growth, and obviously from risk management being able to react to it. So that's what drove our decision. Yeah, people people just underestimate the petrol money and the time factor, don't they? And 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 people say, oh, but you can get properties remotely managed, and and yeah, you even get it managed, even though you're you know on hand, you can deal with it. But yeah. for you, it's more about doing the project and the letting and the management side. You you kind of outsource because that's not your area of interest. Um, it, it could be an area of expertise if you focused on it, I'm sure, but yeah. you prefer to focus on the adding value. Yeah, you? absolutely. I think one of those things when you're building a business, as you build scale, you can start perhaps insourcing if you need to, but in the early stages, you've got to leverage other people's expertise and their capabilities as far as you can to make it more efficient on your time. So that's why we've outsourced it. You know, Our vision is to build a portfolio where perhaps we have an in-house management capability and perhaps at some point 
once you've got a portfolio which is an operating business, you've got an entity which has a lot of intrinsic value in it as well, which can potentially be sold on. You know, you could have a couple of portfolios, you sell one portfolio to deleverage the other one. So perhaps that's something we're, um, we'll be looking at, but um, you know, at the moment, outsourcing is the way to do it. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? The um, uh, building a portfolio to then sell on. It comes back to what we were saying before the cameras were rolling. Um, when I interviewed someone else, they uh, told me they had a loan to value of 40 to 50%. And obviously very envious of that because uh, you were in a position of great expertise, great experience. And, and over the course of your career, you, you do deleverage, don't you? Yeah. Uh, you know, as you get older, as you get... Uh, more advanced, you think, okay, well, I don't need to do risky deals, I don't need to leverage up so much or reduce my borrowing, reduces your exposure and things like that. And especially when it comes to uh, commercial loans, you know, if your loan to value drops below X or whatever they've got in there, they've got the option to call in, you know, some money in order for you to uh, to reduce that loan to value. And people don't really think about that. That, yeah. that could be around the corner if you've got portfolio sitting on 75% loan to value and the market drops by 10%, hey, you've got to cough up quite a bit to uh, yeah. to make that good, haven't you? Absolutely, and I think now, now is a tricky time to be entering the market because especially, you know, getting back to your point about whether you invest up in the north or in the south, I mean, I know lots of people who are doing tremendously well with building portfolios in the north and, and that's great. Obviously, there are fewer um, barriers to entry in terms of capital requirements and how much of a deposit or cash you need to have up front. Um, obviously, when you're investing down in the south and in London, particularly, you do need there's a lot more capital intensive or equity intensive. You need to have that cash that you need to put in yourself to better, you know, to acquire or control those assets because um, the banks will only ever leverage to a certain level. Now, of course, in the, at the beginning of any business growth journey, you know, the biggest risks tend to be up front where you're investing. So you probably are going to find you're more highly leveraged. But the idea over time is to de-risk. You know, whether that be through capital growth or by um, you know paying down um, on your on your loans or whatever it may be, but typically speaking, the risk is at the beginning where you have a higher leverage, and then the strategy should always be to deleverage in time. So, I think the, the example you gave of um, the, the other person you spoke to, you know, if you if you've got a forty to fifty percent leverage across the portfolio, that's that's a great place to be, but it's much harder to start off with that position now. I don't even know if that was possible before. Absolutely. Well, it comes with time, experience, and you know, it, it, it's just a journey, isn't it? I yeah. think um, he, he'd been in the game for a lot longer than uh, than me and you have, yeah. and, um, and and it's always valuable to look up to people who've been doing it for a longer period of time, see what they do, and yeah. you know, you learn from your elders, don't you? Yeah, the absolutely. People that have um, have walked the walk already. Yeah, and and that's why these conversations are always interesting, yeah. you know, because they they were able to do things in property at a different time. For example, you know the whole uh, same-day remortgage thing yeah. back before the pop in 07. You know that was a thing. You know, if you and me were investing back then, hey, we we wouldn't be sitting here. We'd be uh, sipping pina colada somewhere, wouldn't we? Um, but yeah, we, we do the best with uh, what we're given yeah. uh, in the time that we've been given. So. Yeah, I think today it's very much about risk management as well. Mm. You have to understand exactly what those risks are, whether it be market risk. You know, it's got to be the construction, the execution risk. Um, you've got credit risk, you've got all these different risks you need to be really mindful of and you need to have strategies to mitigate them because there are so many things that are happening in today's marketplace that you know, there's a huge amount of uncertainty there but that obviously creates the opportunity for people who've got the right risk appetite Absolutely. to enter the market now so I, I do see there being tremendous opportunities to do deals with people 
when deals have to be done. People Absolutely. will only sell in today's market if they have if to. If they really have to, that's and it. if they do, there's a deal to be done. And, and you know what, you and me, I'm sure we've learned a lot of things from the pop in 07 and over the time that the market's recovered and, and all the banks are doing more due diligence, borrowing is a lot stricter, and as a result, you know you can't get finance as quickly as, as you could you know, 15 years ago. Yeah. You're doing a lot more internal checks as well. You're, yeah. you're thinking like a bank. You're yeah. thinking more diligently. You're thinking harder. You're thinking smarter about where to employ your capital. Yeah. And that's ultimately going to make us better investors. Yeah, definitely. And I think one thing that really helps us today as well is the, the strength and power of the networks as well. You know, We've got so many communities online, whether it be on Facebook, through uh, LinkedIn, as well as the huge net, you know, physical networking events that take place, and you and I are part of a number of communities as well, where the amount of knowledge that's out there is just absolutely fantastic, because it really equips you and arms you with what you need to know before you start making decisions that carry any risk. Um, and that means that people can really go into transactions, or at least you know, the knowledge is out there in a way that it probably hasn't been historically, to really de-risk whatever your, your, um, your investment strategy is. And that's, that's been so powerful and a really critical part of our learning journey as well. And it's enabled us to take on more projects, put more offers out there, use more creative deal structures mm -hmm. to mitigate the risk um, on, on, on all parts, you know, using the right legal, uh, legal structures, you know, the right tax structures with um, the right accountants and having those right professional players available, or the, the power team as they call it, um, and I think that that is a great way of uh, making a success of any property investment journey today, um, even when we are in uncertain times. Definitely, that, that kind of answered my next question as to what gave you the confidence to uh, to do all that investment. But as you quite rightly say, there's so much support out there: the Facebook groups, the um, YouTube videos. You know, there's many property people uh, that are documenting their journey, and um, even I've picked up loads of stuff that I didn't know from from these videos. And you don't have to go on a twenty thousand pound course to pick up stuff. I mean, you know, I'm not knocking any course. I think um, there's a lot of education out there that is very valuable to yeah. you know to people to package it up. And you go to university, you you pay twenty thousand pounds in fees quite easily. Yeah. Whereas you know you, you can get a book and read it all, but you yeah, know, you follow a set format and. There's a format for success, isn't there? And yeah. there's the application afterwards. Yeah. Um, where we are both clear examples of actually applying the knowledge. Which leads me to my next question. Which are the three most important things that you've used in your sort of journey? Uh, resources or anything at all, really? Yeah. I think uh, the first thing is, is knowledge and confidence. And I think as we've touched upon the networks, whether it be online or through the communities that, you know, that we're all part of, um, that's been a, a key factor. You know, you can't really enter any form of transaction or strategy until you've really researched what you're going to do and what the risks are. So I think that's the first thing. I think um, you know, I'm fortunate in having a, a risk and a project management background. And that's really key because you don't need to know the answers to everything. You just need to know where to find those answers and who to pull in, which expertise you need to draw upon. And you need to be able to recognise problems in advance rather than you know, being hit with them at a, at a high speed collision. You know, in slow motion, if you can see something coming, you can react to it. And that's actually even when I talk about my, you know, the previous project where the contractor went out of business, we could see it coming for a couple of months. So actually, we were, we were able to put a lot of measures in place so that we could just very easily take the reins as soon as that happened to continue the project through. 
Um, so I think that's been really important for me. Um, networks, the project and risk management kind of uh, mindset, um, and anyone can develop that through the knowledge um, as well and through the networks. Um, and I think the third thing is probably just, again, very much linked to the networks, is, is having the right contacts. When things do go wrong, knowing who to speak to or who to, who to pull in, you know, knowing which plumbers are good, which electricians are good, which structural engineers are good, who you can call upon to help you to solve problems quickly and react. Um, I think those are probably three key things and, and, and probably, you know, to add a fourth, you just need to be mindful of the, the financial returns and risk reward way up of what you're doing and make sure you've really, really understood what you're trying to get out of it. Because I think um, a lot of people, a lot of people, a lot of things you see online make it very, sound very easy to achieve certain outcomes, but you just need to make sure you do your You never work. hear about the negatives, do you? Yeah. You, you never hear people boasting, oh, I've gone bust today. <laughs> yeah, and actually that's something I'm very keen to do. I'm starting to do a bit more on social media where I want to show you know everyone what I've been doing, how I've been doing it, the highs as well as the lows, mm -hmm. because it's, it's, it's not... It's not an easy path, you know. Um, I, I took the move from the corporate world into what I'm doing now. Um, you know, quite openly, I haven't, I haven't replaced my salary of what it used to be, um, but I'm on a trajectory, and I can see, I can see how I'm going to achieve that end goal. And you know, even once I punch through my what I used to earn in the city, I can see that actually it'll just keep on growing quite easily. You know, and it's passive, really, isn't it? So. Yeah, it, it, it's passive. It'll be a combination of the passive income. I'm actually doing two things. So. I've got like a long-term income generation strategy, which is through the HMOs and the, and the co-living, so high-end shared living uh, in South London. But my second strategy is more of a liquidity strategy, and that's going to be more around doing joint ventures and developments, type of splits and flips. So buy, do up, sell, put it back out on the market, taking you know sort of the large illiquid property assets, mm -hmm. turning them to sort of things that are far more liquid and more more appealing to first-time buyers, for example. Where there's always going to be a demand for those. So, doing a combination of the two, generating lumps of capital through developments, reinvesting some of that through into long-term income generation. Because obviously, you know, when you're building a buy to let or HMO um, investment portfolio, that's always going to be capital intensive. Obviously, as I said in London, you end up having to put more into properties here in the right areas. You put less up into them up in the north, say, but actually, you know, you're still getting equivalent returns. So, I only need to do maybe like one or two transactions down here where I'll probably need to do four or five or six in a, in a lower value Absolutely area of the north. Right. So that, that's kind of what I'll be doing over the coming years um, as part of my journey. Good, good. Is there anything that you're working on right now that you want to share with us? Yeah, so uh, my, um, my current project is an eight-person HMO project as well in the same vicinity as my last project. Um, that's kind of nearing completion, probably got about three weeks left on that. Um, I've got the next project lined up for after that as well, which will be another co-living HMO type project in a similar area, and that's a great deal, um, uh, which which I've been able to secure in the last few weeks. Uh, I've also recently had an airspace development project, which has been agreed, which I'm going to be joint venturing with um, with a, a family member actually who has a uh, design and build uh, construction background. So we're looking to do that. That's probably going to be more of a slow burner because we've got a few more bits we want to put into the mix for that too really um, de-risk that and make that worth our while. Um, so probably three in the pipeline for this year. And then I think, you know, once those are secured, uh, those next two, I'll probably look at bringing some more into the mix and continue uh, growing gradually rather than trying to take on too much too soon. Because, you know, no matter what people say, there's a lot of stress involved in this game. But, you know, once you know how to manage those risks and get through it, 
you know, you can really see the light at the end. And, and I'm, I'm at that point now where I can see the trajectory and, and how I want to achieve that. That's amazing. And you've achieved that in a, in a fairly short space of time, I suppose. You said you only started in property development about one and a half, two years ago. And that's, um, that, that's amazing to have that vision and to literally just execute and show some tenacity, go after the goal, and, and, and you're making it. That's so, fantastic. So far, so good. So far, I'm so not, good. I'm not there yet, but... Uh, <laughs> Wait, the builder will go bust again after I said that. <laughs> <laughs> well, fortunately, I've put other structures in place to make sure that doesn't happen, ah, but that's great. a whole other story. But, so, uh, all these projects that you mentioned, they're South London? Yes, they are. Of course they are, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. That's why we're here, right? <laughs> that's why we're here, yeah, absolutely. So, um, uh, South London again, that's great. And um, are you even looking north of the river? Um, not actively. Um, I think if the right sort of opportunities came up, um, you know, perhaps on a joint venture basis, if the numbers work. If you're going to have to actually physically cross the river. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did the other day, it was a terrible experience, something small. <laughs> it's it's funny, mile and a half, you know, she, she used to live in North London, I was South London, but managed to convince her to join me down south and then we got married the, the, the bright side yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but no I, I, I would definitely do it I would consider it um, I think it, it's all about numbers really you know if the numbers work if you can apply the same sort of model um, you know and you've got the right risk management strategy in place and you've got people who know that area can work and respond then fair enough so yeah I'd, I'd be open to it that's great so t tell me you're uh, you're about to man what's your what's your favorite part of south london then yeah, I love Battersea because that's where I live. You know, it's next to the river. It's really easy to get into town. It's easy to get down to sort of South London, Cordonier, where I'm doing some of my work at the moment. Uh, council tax. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, it's one of the best boroughs for council tax as well. And uh, yeah, it's a great place to be. Unfortunately, prices are quite high there, but they've actually had you know seen a good correction there over the last couple of years. So perhaps becoming a bit more affordable if you want more space. But you know, long term, we want more space, garden, you know, outdoor amenity. Um, yeah, so probably end up moving out at some point, but for now it's it's working well. It works well. Bedus is great. Love Bedus. So, would you recommend to anyone else investing down south? Definitely. I mean, you know, we've we've talked about the benefits and the pitf uh, pitfalls of investing in places which are further away from a risk management perspective. But I think in South London, um, especially the further south you head, there's definitely areas of opportunity. Um, we're seeing a lot of infrastructure improvements, uh, investment in certain areas. I mean, I've mentioned Croydon as an area of interest. We're seeing a lot of interest there now, a lot of more, a lot more competition, and obviously house prices have gone up, but there are still other areas of South London um, which I think work. You know, it's, um, you know even if uh, when you're, you're going to the open market, if prices seem high, there's still deals to be done. You just need to be in a cash position with the right financial backing, whether it be through bridging with terms of principal or private investors, where you can react quickly to opportunities and that's where the deals can be done, where speed of execution is, is going to work in your favour. Good. Your speed. It's always a trade-off, isn't it? Speed and price. Yeah. Yeah, if you want to sell it quick, you're not going to get the best price. So. I mean, and that's definitely the theory of it, but I think in today's market, we're definitely finding that people are still holding on to yesterday's values. But I think people are st it's starting to sink in now that you know, there needs to be that correction. Vendors' uh, expectations are starting to come down a bit just because of the political landscape and some of the huge uncertainties that are out there which which you know um, is concerning for a lot of people uh, and it should be for all of us but as long as you you know have strategies in place to try and reduce your risk and bear in mind that prices can drop further 
factor that into your pricing, put enough offers out there and eventually mm. people will transact with you if you can demonstrate that ability to transact quickly. Absolutely. And I think ultimately it's very important to realise that if you're producing an income producing asset, that the value tomorrow is kind of irrelevant. So as long as you've re you've added the, uh, enough value, you've added enough value, you've been able to refinance the property, and you are in a position where you're getting a rental income of say two thousand pounds a month. Your mortgage is one thousand pound a month. You've got that thousand pound difference every single month as cash flow. You don't need to cash in on the asset, do you? Yeah. You don't need to sell it tomorrow. It's giving you a thousand pound a month. Why would you sell it? Yeah. Even if it's halved in value, if uh, as long as the lender is not calling in the loan, yeah. then why would you sell? Yeah, that's no need. Great, great yeah. point with the lenders. I think the other thing as well I'm finding is that at the end of the day, if lenders and institutions have the appetite to lend on a particular uh, proposition or a property, then if it works for them and their bank grade due diligence, then it's good enough. You know, um, I think that's a test. You know, it's a true test in itself. Definitely, definitely. Well, let's uh, let's wrap up there. And uh, what I'd like to do is uh, put your contact details at the bottom of the screen so people can get in touch with you. Um, but for the listeners on the podcast, um, how do they get in touch? With yeah, you? great. I mean, uh, I'm on, I'm on Instagram. Um, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. That's something that I'm trying to spend a bit more time uh, working with as a platform. Um, Instagram uh, Ro.Shamo, uh, that's me, uh, and uh, Ro Sharma on LinkedIn. Um, yeah, that's, that's the best way to connect with me. Great. And I'll put that all in the show notes as well. So hopefully you can just scroll down to the bottom, click the right link, and get in touch with, with Ro through the link. So we'll call it to, uh, we'll bring it to a close. This was the Down to South London podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Ro Sharma, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks See very much. Soon. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe on Stitcher, SoundCloud or iTunes. And please do give a five-star review to help me reach others also. Are you looking to invest in London? Why not reach out to me to see how I can help you. See further information at www.jeroenhopper.com.